We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you'll join me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Guys, if you're uh, relatively new, not just new to Calvary Central, but just new to uh, Christianity and uh, even Scripture, I think it's important to understand, although the Bible is a book, it is so much more than a book. It's a collection of many books, in fact. And we are in a section of Scripture where we are studying uh, the Apostle Paul's letters to uh, a number of the different churches. Right now we're studying uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. It's not necessarily Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He wrote a number of different letters. This is just uh, the, the letter that we have in front of us to this morning. So what we are reading is... Uh, a pastoral pastoral heart. Paul had planted a church in Corinth. He had spent a year and a half there shepherding it, uh, laying the foundation of the gospel, teaching, training up, and then he uh, left, and now he is writing again to that church in Corinth, encouraging them as they learn what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Let's look at chapter 8. Let's read the entire chapter together, and then we'll pray. Chapter 8, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering uh, to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That is, there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you on his own accord, and we have sent with him the 
brother who's praising the gospel throughout the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this, this lavish gift, which is administered by us. Providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence, confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them, and before the churches, the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Let's pray. Lord, your word again is faithful and it's true. And we do not want to be conformed to this world. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we set our minds on you and your instruction and your direction. Only you have the words of life. So we come together as a community of believers, as a family, those who have boldly proclaim that we follow Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, he's our Savior, and he's our King. And we want to experience the joy of obedience. So do a work in our hearts this morning, Lord. As we surrender our will to you, we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that's a lot to unpack here. And reading right through it, we may miss even what Paul is dealing with. But I need to start out by apologizing to you. I've been uh, on staff here for probably, I think, 16 years now. And I was talking to a friend, and we were kind of just complaining. Remember how we talked about it? It's so fun to complain, isn't it? We were complaining. We were complaining about just this culture within the church today where pastors are afraid to just teach the word. They're afraid of what the people will think. They're more concerned about filling up the seats than they are letting God's word loose because it's only God's word that changes lives. So that was about a week ago. We were just laboring over that reality. And then I come to this section of scripture and I realize something. I have done the very thing that I complained about as I've approached sections of scripture like this. I've been afraid. I'm afraid to be categorized as one of those false teachers that use the gospel for their own personal gain. So when I would come to a section of scripture, I would come at it with a bunch of disclaimers. Hey guys, I'm sorry we're dealing with money today. Understand that we're not passing around the tithe uh, plate again and you don't have to give if you don't want to. And and it comes with all of this, um, all these disclaimers and fine print. Instead of just 
unapologetically teaching the word of God because what I'm realizing now is when I give all of those disclaimers, the tone of which, in which God's word speaks is undermined in a way. We are called to obey God's word, and as we obey his word, we get to experience the joy of his obedience. And I do not want to rob you guys of the joy that God would have for you by somehow uh, speaking in a way that is not honorable to the Lord. Yes, this section deals with giving, but more so, it deals with our identity in Jesus Christ. That God is a giver. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And Jesus has demonstrated his generosity towards us. And in turn, if we are the light in this world, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And he demonstrated generosity to the world. And then he sends out his church and he says, you're the light of the world now. Shouldn't we also be generous? And this is hard because we live in a culture of acquiring more. You have been exposed to in the last, just on Saturday, on average, 5,000 ads. Now, thankfully, our brains can't retain all of them, so you've only really understood about 100 of them. The national debt, and I'm not talking about the governmental debt, that's a whole nother topic. But American debt, credit card debt, buying things we can't afford, it is at an all-time high. Many of us are crippled by our credit card debt. And because of that, we can't give. And again, I'm not talking about just giving to the church. I'm talking about being generous, helping those who are in need. Scripture says, don't be conformed to this world. But the reality is, many of us have conformed. You guys ever hear of retail therapy? You may not have heard of it, but you've done it. Man, I'm feeling pretty sorry for myself today. Let's see, I don't need anything. But let's open up the Amazon app. You buy something. Makes you feel a little bit better, doesn't it? There's a psychological term for that. It's called retail therapy. This chapter is about Christ-likeness that Jesus has open hands. He has open hands of generosity. Our culture teaches closed hands. Take and take and take. So let's look at Paul's words that have been preserved by the Holy Spirit for thousands of years for us to study this morning. Paul has already told us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul is telling us that salvation isn't simply a change in our belief system. We don't just have new morals. It's a complete transformation of heart and mind. And we know it doesn't happen in an instant. Now, in an instant, when we give our life to Christ, we are born again. We stand right before God. 
We're justified, as the term Paul uses. We, we stand judicially right with God. But then he begins this process of what we call sanctification, where he makes us more and more like his son, where he makes us more and more generous, where he peels our fingers open so that we have hearts that want to give and not want to just take and take and take. The prophet Ezekiel spoke about these days in the Old Testament through the Lord's inspiration in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart, heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and I will keep my and you will keep my judgments and do them. Ezekiel was talking about now. We have been given a new heart. That hard heart, it's a worldly heart. It's a closed fist. It's a mind that's set on treasures of earth. That new heart, that's an open hand. That's a heart that is focused on treasures in heaven that lives a life of simplicity and looks for opportunities to bless others. So again, this, is, this isn't a chapter primarily, it deals with money for sure, but it's about becoming more like Jesus. And again, I don't wanna rob you of that joy because I'm afraid of being categorized with those who use the gospel for their own personal gain. God will judge them. But you know what we do? This is what I do. I look at that extreme and, it, and it's so perverted and twisted and wrong and does not exemplify the heart of Christ that I go to the other extreme. And that's not the balance that we see in the word of God. So let's just take the word of God as it is and submit ourselves to it. Jesus says in John fifteen four, abide in me. That means dwell in me, remain in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. That's what we're dealing with this morning. The joy of the Lord, where is that gone? Where is the excitement for the things of the Lord gone? Well, Jesus says if we abide in him, and this isn't static, right? Jesus didn't pick a spot on the mountaintop and then we just go and we sit there and it's, it's a, a life of 
quiet contemplation, Jesus is moving. He's active. He's working in homes. He's working in schools. He's working in places of employment. And it's about going where he is going and doing what he is doing. That's how we abide in him. And as we walk with him, as we obey him, as we follow him, that's where the joy is. And I'm not talking about momentary happiness. I'm talking about excitement, about present promises that are being fulfilled and a future eternity in the presence of our Father. That's what we're dealing with. So again, here's some context. Paul's on his third missionary journey. And while he was on his third missionary journey, he visited churches in Macedonia. And those churches were poor. They were poor, poor. They were dirt, poor. They were... I was thinking about a time where my dad started his own business. He took a, he took a risk. And... Um, and again, this, this level of poverty, our poverty here sometimes is quite a diff- bit different than third world po- poverty. 93% of Americans today are far more wealthy than 7% of the rest of the, the world. So our poverty is much different. Um, but one year, uh, money was so tight that we didn't have a Christmas tree. My mom hung up a sheet, and we hung up the ornaments that we had in the shape of a Christmas tree. And it was a, it was a good Christmas. It was a special Christmas. But the, the, the church in Macedonia, they're poor. But Paul was collecting money for an offering for the church in Jerusalem because famine had hit Jerusalem. And on top of famine, the church was being persecuted. So Jerusalem, they were going through very, the church in Jerusalem was going through very difficult times. So Paul was collecting an offering for them, and he saw an opportunity. The church in Jerusalem was primarily Jews who had converted to Christianity. As he traveled through Greece, he saw an opportunity for the Gentile believers to send a blessing back to these Jewish converts to show that they are one body in Christ. So he is collecting money, and here's a chance again for the Gentile Christians to minister to the Jewish believers. And here the church in Corinth, what do we know about the church in Corinth? It's a port city. It's a wealthy city. It stands to reason that some of the people within the the Christian church in Corinth were business owners. They were financially affluent, and they had committed to Paul that they would help their Christian brothers in Jerusalem, but a year had passed, and guess how much money they had sent? Less than a dollar, (laughs) zero, nothing. The spirit was willing, right? Right? but the flesh was weak. So we have to wonder, and put this in the back of your mind, why? Why had they been so willing to give, but yet they hadn't opened their hands yet and given? Look at verse one through four. Moreover, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God. You might want to underline that. Bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy. 
And their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift in the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. Now, at first glance, it sounds like Paul's saying, hey, why can't you be more like your brother? Here's this church in Macedonia that out of their lack, they're giving. Out of their poverty, they are finding great joy in giving. Why can't you be more like them? But Paul's saying much more than that. He's saying the church in Macedonia, they've figured something out. First and foremost, they have received the grace of God. They understand the price that was paid for them to become sons and daughters of the living God. They understand the cost. So out of the grace that was bestowed to them, in the midst, here's the circumstance, great trial of affliction, here's their mindset, the abundance of their joy. Doesn't match up, does it? That's the upside down kingdom of Christ followers. They can experience trial of affliction and at the same time have an internal joy that cannot be stolen from them. And it's because they received the grace of God. Out of their deep poverty, there's the circumstance. They abounded in the riches of their liberality. There's their heart. That's what it means to abide in Christ. That we're not governed by our circumstances. We're governed by the Spirit of God in our lives. And that's how we shine as a light. Because people see us in great trial of affliction, yet we demonstrate joy. And they say, what is going on? How is that even, even possible? Oh, it's by the grace of God. And it's not just a t- Christian t- term that we throw out there, we have spent time meditating on the reality that while we were yet sinners, Christ gave up himself for us. We are not lovable. We haven't earned anything. We haven't done anything to earn God's love. But God, think about the amazing reality that is this book. And the many authors, different occupations, different cultures, but God tells his story of redemption and forgiveness throughout human history and preserves those ancient events for us to study here on a Sunday morning so that we may know him more because he desires to dwell with his people and he desires to dwell in his people because he loves us. That's the grace of, when we talk about the grace of God, we're not talking about God's attitude. We're talking about something that he tangibly demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. Something that has substance. It's just not a mindset, oh, God is graceful. No, he displayed it through his son, Jesus. And the churches in Macedonia, they got it. So they fell over themselves saying, Paul, you're taking this. We want to bless the church in Jerusalem. We want to give of ourselves because we know that there's more joy in giving than taking. We've learned that. 
We're not jumping through a hoop because it's the right thing to do. No, we believe Jesus when he says it is better to give than to receive. Just as Jesus spoke in Matthew 8, freely you have received, now freely give. So Paul is showing these Corinthian believers an example of what it looks like when you really understand the grace of God. You have these churches in Macedonia in the midst of financial hardship and they're giving freely and then you have this church in Corinth in the midst of their financial prosperity and they can't quite find it in them to let go. What's the difference? Again, the churches of Macedonia had discovered the joy in generosity. It was so rewarding, so joyous, so fulfilling that when an opportunity presented itself, they jumped at the chance and they said, Paul, you are taking this to Jerusalem. Look at verse five. Paul says, and not only as we had hoped, Paul says, we hope that that the churches in Macedonia would, would give towards this cause, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So how did the Macedonian believers find themselves in this place? Well, they gave themselves to the Lord first. What does that mean? Again, that word that we've heard this morning a few times, submission. Is Jesus our king Or is he just someone that's there to give us what we want when we want it? Like Peter said, is it only Jesus that, have, that has the words to life? Or do we just look at his word as an opinion? One of many ideas, sometimes we listen, sometimes we don't. Giving ourselves to the Lord is trusting him. It's having faith in him. And as the Macedonian believers gave themselves to the Lord, in the midst of that, God planted his desires deep within their hearts. And God's desire at this time was to bless the church in Jerusalem and ensure that they were well taken care of so that in their lack, they may have abundance because of the care of the saints. It was a work of the spirit in the lives of the Macedonian believers. Isn't that what we see in the life of Zacchaeus? You guys remember Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a, he was a wee little man. And a wee little man was, was he? He was a tax collector. He was corrupt. As many tax collectors at the time were. He liked to shave off a little from the top. Collect a little more than was owed and pocket it for himself. But something happened when Jesus came to town. When Zacchaeus heard the message of the gospel and that there was forgiveness available to him through Jesus, he submitted to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what did that accomplish in his heart? How did that manifest? I know that's a weird word nowadays, but how did that become evident in his life? 
he gave. He gave half of his money to the poor. Did Jesus ever tell him to do that? No, it was the work of the, the transforming work of the Spirit in his life. And then he went back and paid all those he had cheated four times more than what he had cheated them. God did a work in him. And he went from a closed-fisted man that looked at this world and said, what can I get to a man that wanted to give because of Jesus? What once was so important to him, it sickened him. What have I done? And he gave back fourfold. Guys, this isn't about religion. This is, again, I know cliche, but it's about transformation. That's the work that God wants to do in us. He wants to show us how to live like Jesus. Old things have passed away. We're a new creation in Christ. Didn't we see the same thing in the book of Acts? When the church sold all that they owned, and they used their resources to take care of one another? How can I use what I have to be a blessing to others? That is what it means to follow Jesus. Look at verse six. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything. Now, if this was 1 Corinthians, I would think that Paul's being sarcastic here because he was really laying it down in 1 Corinthians. They had gone off the rails. The church was looking nothing like the body of Christ. There was division. There was argument. And many times Paul uses sarcasm. Oh, you know everything, don't you? Who, who am I to tell you anything? But now in the second letter, he's been commending the church in Corinth. So he, I honestly believe he's being genuine here. He says, you abound in everything now, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us. I don't question those things, but I want to see you abound in this grace also. You're abounding, you're you're doing well in these things, but why are you so close-fisted with your money? Why out of all all these things, you're so generous, you're so giving, but when it comes to your money, you're having a hard time letting go. And we have to ask, if we're tight-fisted with our finances, why is that one area that we haven't trusted God in? There's a young man that once prayed, Lord, I'm going to start a business and of whatever money it makes, I will keep 10% and give you 90%. That was the founder of Quaker Oats. And you know what? I don't know if I would have, but he kept his word. And that's not a formula at all. But I think we kind of do the opposite. That's an easy prayer to pray But what happens once the money starts flowing in? That becomes a little bit more difficult to keep that promise, right? Let's look at the Old Testament for a moment. Open up to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. 
Again, we have a lot in common with the church in Corinth. And regardless of the price of eggs, we're pretty blessed. We are, we are a wealthy nation. We live in abundance. We have disposable incomes. Now, again, some of us have gotten ourselves into trouble because of credit cards. That has become a little bit tighter. We bought into the lie that we need more. Just one more thing and then I'll be happy. And that needs to die in us. That's the old man. That's the old nature. But I want you to think about the Israelites in the wilderness. Do you think they had much to covet when they were slaves in Egypt? Do you think abundance was a temptation in Egypt? But now they've been delivered. They're walking through the wilderness. God is providing for them day by day with manna from heaven. He says, don't store up the manna for tomorrow. Trust me, I will provide you every day. I will give you a meal to eat. But there's something coming in their future. They are going to enter into the promised land. And in the promised land, it will be really a a land of abundance. The Bible calls it a land of milk and honey. And here's a warning. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, 11, through Moses, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. So what's the temptation in abundance? All that I have is mine. This all belongs to me. We can believe that or we can believe God's word. Everything belongs to him. The earth is yours and everything in it. What right do we have to live closed-fisted when what's in our hands doesn't even belong to us? It belongs to God. And you know what he says? Set your mind on the things above, not the things below. Seek first. I got to tell you, I'm sure I've shared this before, but way back in the day, kids, there was something called an Xbox 360. (laughs) This was just about the time that they invented cars and Coca-Cola was like five cents. So there was a big release of the Xbox 360, lines everywhere. And uh, 
I had some friends. Pastor John's son was up in Prescott. And uh, there was a Costco up there. The lines here were crazy. So he said, hey, come up, come up to Prescott. We're in line in Prescott, and there's only two other people in line. Keep in mind, this is like 8 p.m. the night before, and it's in the middle of winter. He says, come wait in line with us, and, I, and you're going to get an Xbox 360. So I drove to Prescott that night, and we all sat on cold concrete waiting for Costco to open from midnight to 9 a.m., And right before they opened, the pastor of Calvary Prescott drove by and he saw his staff in line (laughs) waiting for their Xbox 360. And he rolled, rolled down the window and he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all other things will be added unto them. Now he was being funny, but it was true. That's that's the culture we live in right now. But it all belongs to him. So the question on our minds needs to be, God, how can I steward what is yours? How can I take care of what is yours? What do you want me to do with your resources? Because that's what Moses, through the inspiration of God's spirit, that's what he saw coming. Because in Joshua 5, the Israelites entered into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And what happened? They built houses and they experienced the abundance of land and they forgot that it was all through the hand of God. They forgot. And that's the temptation, that we forget our poverty. We forget that we were lacking. We, f- we forget that we were hopelessly lost and that Jesus paid everything to find us and save us and that he brought us out of bondage and he brought us out of slavery and now we are his sons and daughters. We're the kids of the king and all that he has is ours. And then we say, no, no. No one can have it. That's like when I buy my kids fries and I want one fry. Just let me have one fry. No. (laughs) Those are my fries. I'm letting you eat my fries. But that's, they're little pagans. But we forget we so easily forget that everything belongs to God. And guys, I want to take, sometimes we look at these ideas and they sound, oh, well, we'll get to this. But we need to take a step back and ask, okay, if I have very little available at the end of the month, what am I spending my money on? What, what has my heart Where my treasure is, there my heart is also. Look at verse 8. I speak not by commandment, Paul says, but I'm testing something. What's he testing? The sincerity of your love. The sincerity of your love. By the diligence of of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, okay, let's talk about love for a second, Paul says. What does love look like? Jesus Christ, who was rich, 
Yet for your sakes became poor, who left his place in heaven to come down and take on the form of a man. He became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul says that's love. That's tangible love. And I'm testing the sincerity of your love. You say you love the believers in Jerusalem. Why, why aren't you demonstrating that love? Again, let me give this to you. Matthew six nineteen. It's easy to say we believe something. It's easy to say we feel a certain way. It's easy to say we're making a commitment in a certain area, but... This brings it home. Jesus says, do not, in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be Also, print out your bank statement and you'll find out real quick what you love. That's the true test. How we handle our money. That's why scripture talks about money so much. Has it been abused? Yes, I'm sensitive to that. Do men and women pervert the gospel for themselves? Yes, I'm aware of that. But let's look at what God's word says. How we handle our money is a true indicator of the condition of our heart. And it's a principle that we see throughout Scripture. Let me repeat, a hard heart equals a closed hand. A heart of stone is a hard heart that focuses on treasures on this earth. But a soft heart, a new heart, a transformed heart, that is an open hand where we're more concerned about eternal, things of eternal significance. Can I give you one more Old Testament example as we close? Because God's the same today, yesterday, today, and forever, right? There was something in the Old Testament, and maybe many of you are familiar with this, it's called the year of Jubilee. Some college students today are hoping for the year of Jubilee, but that's, that's not what we're dealing with. It's a year of debt release. The year of Jubilee was a year where uh, Israelites that were in bondage to um, debts and they were indentured servants, they were prisoners and captives and slaves, Um, they had given up their land, all of that was returned to them. That was the year of of Jubilee. Everything that had been borrowed was returned to their original owner. It's called the year of Jubilee. And it's a wonderful picture of New Testament themes of redemption and forgiveness. And ultimately it points to Jesus who pays our debt. We're no longer slaves to sin. We get to enter into his rest. It was a wonderful picture of Christ's forgiveness. But let me give you some scripture out of Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, dealing with that year of Jubilee. At the end of every seven years, 
you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Now, let me tell you, this kind of debt was much different than the debt we experience today. This debt was about surviving. This was during a time where if you had a couple bad crops, your family wasn't eating. So this is about starvation. This isn't, hey, I want to buy that. I can't afford it. Let's put it on the card and pay 22% interest. That's not the kind of debt we're dealing with. This debt was about survival. And the opportunity that the Israelites had to lift a brother out of a cycle of poverty so that he could get back on his feet again, so that he could feed his family, but he wouldn't stay in that cycle of poverty because after seven years, he would be released from his debts. It was about leaning on one another and taking care of one another. But look at verse seven. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates of your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. You shall not harden your heart and you shall not what? Shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Does it say once? Does it say your brother who has 10 cattle wants an 11th cattle and he wants you to pay for it? Go ahead and... No, it says needs. According to his needs. Verse 9. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land." That's the heart of God. We take care of one another. When someone's in need, we bless them. And sometimes it's giving financially. Sometimes it's giving a little bit to get out of the hole and then saying, hey, talk to Elliot. Because Elliot understands a budget. Or talk to someone else who has self-discipline in our fellowship and can go sit with you and go over turning off some of these faucets that are just bleeding money in your life because it's choking out your ability to give. See, it comes down to this, guys. When that man came to Jesus and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you understand the law. What does the law say? He says, well, I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And to love my neighbor as myself. And then he asked Jesus, so so who's my neighbor? Why did he ask Jesus that? Why did he ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? It's the same reason when I was in youth ministry, students would say, how far is too far with my girlfriend? 
How can, I, how can I do just enough so that I can get into heaven, but no more? That is a hard heart. How much do I have to give, pastor? Is it 10%? Is it 10% of gross or is it 10% of net? Guys, that's not the question. The question is, who can I help? Christ has given so much for me Lord, how do you want me to express your generosity to others? That's the question of an open hand. How can I give? And I can't lay into this passage without thanking so many in this fellowship who give so much to the central family to take care of one another, to paint the bathrooms, to fix sign lighting, to just do so many things just because they love God and they love the central family. That's the closed hand versus the open hand. That's the difference between a heart conformed to the greed of our culture and the soft heart transformed into the likeness of Christ who though he was rich became poor so that we may become rich. Let me close with this, and then we'll share communion. In verse 10, Paul says, and in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. Paul says you were moved to act, but now let's follow through. Some of you may be sitting here today and say, I have no desire to give. I am not going to try to convince you or guilt you into giving. That's an issue between you and God. But some of you have a heart to give. You just haven't followed through with it. And again, I'm not primarily just talking about the church. Maybe you have someone in mind that you have been thinking about blessing and it just hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's time to follow through. John Corson writes, herein lies a great danger for us. For one of the great hazards of the Bible study is thinking, one of the great hazards of Bible study is thinking by writing something in our notes or agreeing with it in our hearts, we're actually doing whatever it is we're writing down or agreeing with. But James likens this to one who looks in the mirror and realizes there should be some changes made but doesn't do anything about it. So again, maybe God's been working in this area. I'll tell you right now that the needs of many at Calvary Central are taken care of by a few. The many needs of Calvary Central are taken care of by a few families that have made it a priority to give. Maybe that's an area that God's working on. I want to encourage you to do it. Not because, not for any other reason but because I know that obedience to God leads to joy. And I'm not going to stand in the way and apologize for saying something like that, knowing that there is joy in obedience. But God loves a cheerful giver. 
That's the nature of our God. He is generous. God so loved the world that he gave. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lives. Out of Adam's rib, he created a helpmate, a friend, and a companion. Jesus told the disciples, I must leave so that I may give you the wonderful gift of my Holy Spirit. And what have we learned in 1 Corinthians? That we have all been given gifts. Our God's generous. Wouldn't it stand to reason he wants his kids to be generous too? If we are ambassadors of Christ, our lives are to be lived with that same generosity. We live in a nation of abundance. Let us never let that abundance cause us to forget all that God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to pass the offering plate around one more. I'm just kidding. No, we're not. <laughs> See, I still got that in me. I'm working on it, guys. Can we have uh, the worship team come up? Amen. We'll have the ushers come up to and get ready to pass around communion. You know, one thing that's been on my heart lately, um, again, I know you've seen in the news um, these different moves of God throughout the Midwest and a college in Kentucky. And a lot of people have asked uh, Pastor John's opinion on it and my opinion on it. And the one thing that I find extremely encouraging about it is it's beginning with repentance. It's not beginning with a famous speaker coming to town. It's not beginning with a a certain band coming to town. It's beginning with people standing up and confessing their sin and desiring for God to work in their lives. When you look in scripture, when God's presence is made known, a lot of times we think of God's presence um, causing just elation and, and celebration and shouting and all kinds of things like that. And I'm not saying any of that's wrong, but when Jesus appeared to Peter, what did Peter say? Depart from me. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. When Isaiah stood in the presence of God in his throne room in Isaiah 6, what did he say? I'm unworthy. So for me, I, I repent this morning. I repent of sometimes being concerned of what others may think of me instead of just teaching the word of God as it stands. But some of you, as we reflect on generosity, if the Lord's encouraging you to repent of maybe spending habits, maybe you look at your credit card debt and it's crushing, and you know it's because of just poor poor decisions. Trust me, I, I get it. I've been there. I'm going to ask everybody to, to bow their heads and close their eyes before we take communion. Because Paul encourages us to do some introspection. If, if you need to start this morning on this, this, uh, this journey of uh, being generous by first getting your own household in order, and you would just say, Pastor, I need prayer in that area. I admit, I've been irresponsible. God has given me so much, but very little 
goes back to him. And I just, I need help. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you be courageous enough to raise your hand? Honored to pray with you. God bless you guys. Lord, you are so good. And you're so patient with us. I, I believe with all my heart to understand your grace. We need to be people of continual repentance. Because not one of us have arrived. Not one of us can say, okay, I look like Jesus now. There's such a gulf between who you are and who we are. Lord, give us that heart of repentance, continually turning back to you, depending on you, begging for just you to work in our lives. And those that raised their hands and said, well, I just need a little self-discipline. I, wanna, I want to be a demonstration of Jesus' generosity. I want to be in a place financially that when there's a need, I can help meet that need. I want to take care of my church family. I want to take care of the community around us. So Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts first. We know that that's where it has to begin. I pray for freedom. And you give us freedom. Not freedom to do whatever we want, but a freedom to walk in your ways. Lord, we love you so much and thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.